Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the largest vaccine rollout in Canadian history is about to get underway. In the early stages of the rollout, supply will be limited. The quantity and schedule of vaccine distribution will be the subject of ongoing discussion with the provinces and territories. Jason Kenney pushes back against those criticizing his response to the pandemic. I know that you've just joined uh, folks who are doing drive-by smears on Alberta. I will remind you that uh, we have had uh, through eight of the nine COVID months, the lowest levels of transmission, of hospitalizations, of ICU admissions, of COVID fatalities on a per capita basis of the large Canadian provinces to this date. And the premiers call on the federal government to increase health care transfers. The premiers are going to be asking for 35% uh, as, as the amount, uh, which is roughly $24 billion. Uh, I think it's a fair ask to return to at least 35% makes sense. It's Thursday, December 10th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. Good morning, John. Morning, Mark. Let's talk about vaccines. Uh, the uh, Health Canada has now approved the Pfizer vaccine, uh, which uh, Canada is due to receive and, and start distributing very soon, perhaps as early as next week. Uh, do you think this takes, even though it's a, it's a relatively small number of doses that we have in Canada, does this take some pressure off the government, um, which had been under fire from the opposition for the procurement of vaccines for a couple of weeks now? Yes, I think it does. I mean, I don't think there was any doubt that we had signed up to enough vaccines that there would be enough in in quantity terms uh, by, let's say, the middle of next year. So it wasn't an issue that, that we weren't going to have enough vaccine. It was a question of where we were going to be sitting watching the British and the Americans and the Germans and maybe even the Mexicans, Russians and Brazilians all getting vaccine, but we didn't get any supply. And I think, you know, being the third country that has approved the Pfizer vaccine and the fact that, that uh, supplies might arrive before Christmas, it does take some of the heat off the government. You know, the, 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 I think the opposition kind of leapt too quickly to make the case that uh, that we hadn't, you know, we were obviously not producing vaccine domestically and we were at the back of the line when it came to imported vaccine. And the government just didn't disabuse anybody of that notion. I mean, it, it made it sound like we were going to have a, a real problem getting supplies. So I suppose it's always better to under-promise and over-deliver. But it sounds like they were almost as surprised as anybody else that we, we, uh, we've got this vaccine arriving before Christmas that's going to be in people's arms. So I think it's, uh, it, it's a very good news story for them and, uh, and maybe a cautionary tale for the opposition not to be too eager to, to embarrass the government and then find out that, uh, you know, the government has actually lived up to some of its promises. Yeah, it's interesting, though, because as I mentioned, it's a relatively small number of doses, 250,000 doses, which means 125,000 people out of 35 million uh, receiving the double dose required to immunize them. Um, and so it's it's more the fact that there are some vaccines in Canada uh, as opposed to there being no vaccines, while other countries have it, than the actual number of vaccines, right? Right, and I, and I think we're going to be vaccinating the most vulnerable in our population, which was always the concern. You know, they've also laid out the rollout plan, which suggests that by, you know, that by September or so, we're going to have 
50% of the population vaccinated. So, you know, by that stage, you're starting to get to herd immunity status. So, I, you know, I think at this stage, it looks a lot better than it did a couple of weeks ago from, from, the, from the government's point of view. Meanwhile, of course, we are continuing to fight the pandemic uh, through other measures, including uh, stopping people from interacting with each other if they don't have to. And in Alberta, there's been some controversy over how the government there has handled it. Jason Kenney pushed back against his his detractors yesterday uh, after there had been criticism that his government waited too long to put in place the kind of measures it introduced this week, like uh, mandatory masks and and telling people not to gather for Christmas. Um, it did Do you think Alberta did wait too long, and do you think Kenny's paying a price for that? Well, they certainly waited too long from my point of view, because I was due to go out there with my family to spend time in Alberta, and now we're not going. So, hmm. yeah, I think that uh, they, they clearly resisted doing anything and then have been forced by the by the numbers, which you know, when you've got numbers in Alberta which are higher than in than in uh, than in Ontario, which is three times the population, then you're clearly doing something wrong. And Kenny's response, I mean, he points to the to the mortality rate as being the key indicator, and in, in Alberta's, in his words, doing better on that front than than other provinces. But you know, clearly the thing had run out of control, and they were obliged to take extremely tough measures now to uh, to rein it back in again. And his response is to, you know, when he's questioned about that, to to hurl back insults at, at people asking him legitimate questions and saying, you're being, this is an anti-Alberta pylon. And, um, you know, I think it looks a little bit petty from the, from the, from the Premier. Uh, his approval ratings reflect the fact that m- many of his constituents feel the same way. All right, let's turn to the First Minister's meeting. The Prime Minister will be meeting with the premiers of the provinces and the territories. And, of course, health care is at the top of the list of demands from the premiers. Uh, what do you expect from this meeting? Well, the, the government is already signaling, the federal government is already signaling ahead of time, but they're still focused on the pandemic, that this is a first conversation as far as uh, new funding for health care. So, I mean, clearly not much is going to come of it. Um, you know, and probably quite rightly. For one thing, the government doesn't have the money to to uh, allocate another twenty eight billion dollars a year for uh, for health transfers. Secondly, I don't think the the, the provinces have made the case that, that that there should be this funding. I mean, they keep talking about the percentage which the federal government um, funds, which they say is about twenty two percent. I think that's a, a questionable number. But the but the provinces lived within their means when the when the cost increases were limited to 3% in the, the middle of the, the last decade. So they can obviously do it. The other thing is that the case for, just because we have an aging population, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, healthcare costs are spiralling out of control. I mean, the Canadian Institute for Health Information, which tracks this stuff, suggests that seniors are a diverse group. You know, the 65 to 69-year-old age group has healthcare spending at comparable levels to the general population. So the the actual, while you've got an aging population, the actual cost that is spent on seniors has actually not changed very much in the last decade. I mean, and they estimate, uh, Kaihai estimates that uh, $2 billion a year would be uh, a reasonable expectation of health cost increases going forward. So clearly it's going to cost more for the country, but it's not exponentially more. So the idea that suddenly the, the federal government has to 
rush out and spend another $30 billion a year on health care just because we have an aging population. The facts just don't merit it. In fact, one thing I wrote about today, which I think is far more worthy of consideration by the premiers and by the prime minister, is mental health care. Right. And uh, there was a statistic that came out uh, from the Mental Health Commission. It's in a study which has not yet been released, but uh, they released one finding, and that is that more than half of the population is grappling with mental health care problems uh, as a result of the pandemic. That number was at 67% this time last year and is now at 44%, the, the number of people who say they have strong mental health. So if only 44% of the population has got strong mental health, there is a huge number that are having problems, and particularly in the um, the young person age group. I mean, it is, there's a, an epidemic of mental health issues among our young people, and I think the provinces should be looking at that. A, a small amount of healthier dollars would have a, a disproportionate impact on that problem. And I think that that and other things like um, removing trade barriers between provinces, these are the types of things that they should be focused on rather than demanding an you know, unrealistic amount of money from the federal mm. government. All right, finally, John, uh, this is uh, an important anniversary. It was two years ago that <coughs> the arrest and detention of the two Michaels uh, in, in China, Michael Kovrig, Michael Spavor, began. And uh, and I think a lot of people are wondering, is there going to be any progress in, in getting them free in the near future? Are there any signs of, of optimism here? Well, I think there are, but not because of anything the, federal, the uh, Canadian government is doing. You know, the Chinese are impervious to external pressure. And, you know, while the idea of getting all of our allies on site to lobby for this is an ad- admirable one, I guess, um, it's not having any impact. The only thing that's going to have any, an impact is the dropping of the extradition charges against uh, Madame Meng. I mean, I think that, that if the, the U.S. was to drop those charges uh, in some kind of plea bargain where she admits some kind of guilt, then that would have a, a, an, an, an impact on Spavar and Kovrig even though the Chinese government obviously says these cases are unrelated. I mean, they quite clearly are, given the, the timing of the arrest of the two men. So I think there are there are causes for, um, for, for some optimism. It's a desperate situation for them, but I think that uh, uh, certainly by this time next year they will be out. Let's hope you're right. John, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. That's John Iveson of the National Post. In the early stages of the rollout, supply will be limited. The quantity and schedule of vaccine distribution will be the subject of ongoing discussion with the provinces and territories. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. At McLean's, Michael Freeman argues Canada's vaccine rollout won't be easy. Freeman writes, the first hurdle will be actually securing enough doses. But the problems don't stop there. Where will the vaccines be stored? How will governments prevent theft? Will the feds conscript airlines to fly shipments across the country? Of course, none of this will matter if Canadian institutions can't convince the public to take the thing in the first place. At globalnews.ca, Bill Kelly makes the case for getting vaccine priorities straight. Kelly writes, It's been suggested that MPs and government officials should be near the top of the list to receive the COVID vaccine, but to even suggest that politicians jump the queue is ridiculous. Elected officials are not frontline workers. Doctors, nurses, personal support workers, police, firefighters and paramedics 
should be first to roll up their sleeves. We all want to protect ourselves, but the right thing to do is to stand back and let those who need the vaccine the most go first. In the Globe and Mail, Conrad Yakabuski argues Justin Trudeau is still hoping the U.S. will do his dirty work on releasing the two Michaels. Yakabuski writes, The strategy that appears to be at play in winning the release of Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig suggests the Trudeau government is counting on the Trump administration to offer a deferred prosecution agreement to Huawei chief financial officer Meng Wanzhou. If such a deal were to secure the release of the two Michaels, it would bring an end to the cruel injustice they are experiencing and extricate the Trudeau government from a situation it has shown neither the will nor the guts to face up to on its own. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The parliamentary budget officer will release a report this morning on the government's economic update. And as CPAC's Martin Stringer reports... It is sure to raise questions. Mark, raise questions is exactly what this report is supposed to do. This morning at 9 a.m., Parliamentary Budget Officer Yves Giroux will release his report called Fall Economic Statement 2020 Issues for Parliamentarians. Then a little later, he'll hold a virtual briefing with members of the media. The purpose of these so-called Issues for Parliamentarians reports put out by the PBO is to try to look into major government economic documents or policy statements and to double-check the calculations, to challenge the assumptions, to look into the unanswered questions and the questionable conclusions. So when the government projects, for example, a deficit of $381.6 billion, well, Yves Giroux may check the math behind that. When the government makes forecasts about its spending trends and a possible $1.3 trillion national debt, the PBO may challenge that. He'll have questions as well, for example, suggesting that MPs might want to ask for more detail about how the government's new multi-million dollar aid program for hard-hit industries such as tourism and arts sector, well, exactly how that will work. So Mark, for parliamentarians as well as for journalists, it will be an exercise that will be rich in questions in search of answers. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will take part in the First Minister's meeting. Green Party leader Annamie Paul will participate in a news conference with Ontario Green Party leader Mike Schreiner ahead of the First Minister's meeting. Innovation Minister Navdeep Baines will join partners and early adopting organizations to launch the 50-30 Challenge. Immigration Minister Marco Mendocino will take part in a virtual citizenship ceremony, which will also mark the fifth anniversary of Operation Syrian Refugees. And International Development Minister Karina Gould will participate in a celebration awarding the Nobel Peace Prize to the World Food Program. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, December the 10th. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.